All right. Podcast number two for 2020. It's a long way, isn't it? We've mm. come a long way mm. in... How long have we been doing this podcast? Doesn't seem Six, like seven months? No, what? Really? Well, by the time this is released, yeah. Uh-huh. Right now, I think five <laughs> months, but... Oh, this is how organised we are. <laughs> you are an extremely organised man. You are thinking a year in advance already, and I just gave you a huge lecture in the last podcast about how you should plan your life in advance. Me sitting here, yeah, how long has this been? Really? Five months, bushy. <laughs> <laughs> I am very methodical and organised. Although that's sometimes worked against me. I struggle to live in the moment. I, <laughs> what a robotic thing to say. I struggle to live in the moment and have uh, what you humans call as uh, fun. <laughs> <laughs> and also very good at maths. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, man. But that is like the Indian and Asian mindset. Become a robot. Mm, it is. Just be really good at maths. But you get shit, don't Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're going to save the world. No, I, I, do, I really believe that. Well, China, um, I, I don't know about India, but China... Yeah, China's not doing... They're really not pulling their weight, but, you know, yeah, China's plowing ahead. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I do think it is that. It's because they, they train their society to be very intelligent ants. That's cool. That's it, isn't it? Mm. That's exactly it. And that's the perfect segue into uh, my chosen topic for this podcast. Is Gr- it? Group identity. Yeah. That is the perfect segue. Isn't group it? identity. Amazing. Yes. We're all just part of a colony of ants. Well, we are. We really are. I know this. We're all just part of multiple colonies. Now, there's no real opinion I have on group identity. I just want to examine and explore the topic because it's so relevant to the comedy I put out there. It's so relevant to just the way I I I, I think at the moment, and it's why I've just been observing it a lot lately in the way you know the culture scape is at the moment. People talk about identity politics and all that sort of thing, but. And I used to use that term a lot as a way to dismiss the, you know, the SJWs. But <laughs> really, all... Well, th- this is your area of expertise. All politics is identity politics. Mm. It's based on some form of shared identity. Well, and commonalities like among various groups and, and, and tribes competing against other groups and tribes mm. for their interest. It is really unfortunate. Well, you know, it has its pluses and minuses, but I think... Look, cause no, I... It, it, depends on how you, it depends on how you orchestrate those, but essentially what you're saying is just... just like human beings, it is inescapable that when you have more than two of them, it mm. becomes culture. And culture just naturally starts becoming, I don't know, I guess like there's some parts of every individual together. So okay. it's not just okay. politics, is it? Everything, Everything is culture. Yeah, okay, okay. As soon as you get away from an individual level, but even when you get to the individual level, it's so influenced by culture. But do you think when I, when, I, when I talk about group identity, do you think that's just synonymous with culture or do you think culture is sort of part, that's one aspect of group identity? No, actually, you know what? I think group identity is probably a more precise definition of it. Probably shouldn't use the word culture, but something. Look, uh, tribalism, identity, that that kind of stuff. It's all. It's all kind of interlinked, and it's this. It's this idea. Is it's we can't escape it. It's intrinsic to us as Homo sapiens. It is Mm. a big thing. A big takeout I took from that uh, the Sapiens book was uh, 
Neanderthals actually had a larger brain than Homo sapiens. Uh, and there, there's, it's not conclusive, but there's evidence that suggests their computational ability and their IQ was actually higher than the average Homo sapien. But the reason Homo sapiens eventually won the Darwinian race was because we were able to uh, organize and conduct ourselves uh, in, in groups and in tribes mm. through shared symbols or whatever that may be, shared ideas. It's imagination. Yeah, abstract thinking. Abstract thinking, yeah. right, yeah. And, well, a lot of it, whether it's in the sphere of politics or just general social commentary, so many people now have this idea. I, they'll, they'll say, I'm a free thinker. I'm an individual. No, you're not. Are you? No one is. No, <laughs> yeah. Like, really, I thought it. Because I used to say that, like, I'm a, no, I'm not left or right. I'm a free thinker. But that in itself is a tribe. Don't you think? The, the free thinking tribe. Yes. That becomes a tribe. And then yes. you have a bias towards other people who are free thinkers. And you're more interested in the, in the goals of that particular community. So then it just becomes a group identity anyway. Well, this is what I'm saying is that there are group identities that are much more useful. Yeah. And so it's a matter of like orchestrating which of those cultures or yeah, identities is... The, mo- the ones that you should be focusing on. Yeah. So, for instance, a, a really good example of this is the U.S. Um, because the U.S. is a nation of immigrants, they couldn't make their they couldn't make their, their identity. So, say if you go to a country like India, a lot of the a lot of the culture will just be around like we're Hindu or we're sure. Muslim. A lot of, a lot of it is very religious. Well, America based. Y- used to be like that. Used to be Actually, like that. Every country used to be like. Yes, that. it used to be a lot more. We're a Christian nation. Hmm. That that was a, that was a huge part of their identity. Hmm. But what happened when they started moving in immigrants was to try and make the entire society collectively work. <clears throat> the overall narrative was we are Americans. Hmm. And that's why you see so much patriotism interlaced into American society is because of something that started. I think in the 40s. Right. It was a long time ago that they really started pushing that narrative there. In Australia, not well, so, so much. That like patriotism our narrative didn't exist prior to that. It existed, but it wasn't in the same way. It's well, like, America was always built upon the ideas of you know individual freedom, and was it? Well, see, that's the myth that's happened now. But like you know, if you go to say Pilgrim times. Yeah. No, like the the myth, the, the what what built their identity was Christianity. Sure, sure. And so there was an overlay of that, and so yeah, the founding forefathers might have been trying to lace that in to make mm-hmm. a uh, to to well in the, in justify the fact they weren't part of the British Empire. Anymore. Yeah, well, I suppose the the counter argument to that was yeah, that it was a Christian nation, but the individual freedom aspect was more in terms of the go- you know the government. Which is another thing that they seem to prize so strongly. And again, it's because that culture was pushed, that we are a nation of individuals. Whereas in other cultures, like in yeah. China and stuff, it's like this idea of a but collective. That becomes a collective. That's what I'm trying to say. That yes. becomes a collective. Yes. So which one's more useful is the whole point, right? Mm. Like, it's just like, yes, okay, so you are saying, because I will argue this to the cows come home. And you just said, for instance, that I'm not left or right. I'm an individual thinker. No, yes, I, said, I might used be to say that. that. Okay, but the thing is that, well, what else, how else would you describe, see, this is the thing now, like, I do like this where you're going from, because I, I honestly think exactly the same thing, and I've noticed it a lot recently, is that as soon as you start identifying as things, mm. you actually make yourself stupider, if that's a word. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect example right here. <laughs> 
I think yeah, that... you do because then you just then uh, subconsciously you do, you inherit a bias towards that particular identity. Yes, and you're not able to objectively look at anything. But the 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 thing is, no matter what, that's going to be the case. You're going to have a, a bias towards whatever group identity you consider yourself to be a part of. So the question to me now isn't about, I used to think, oh, how can I best uh, avoid a tribal mentality? How can I best uh, not, uh, uh, you know, fall for the for group biases? But now it's more about how do I choose the, you know, the, the right groups for, for me and the best, the best group identity or identities to be able to conduct um, as, as high quality a life as I can. Mm. I think that's what people should also be thinking about as well. Mm. And I think that actually makes a lot of sense. I think that that's probably the way that you're going to, because um, again, it's, it's all these things of just like, once you start adopting, because what is culture or what is identity at the end of the day? Really? It's a principle of value. It's a, it's mm, a set of values, values that you're buying into. Shared experiences um, can really develop, can, can, can foster a sense of, Group identity. So you you know you spoke about nineteen forties American things like that. The, the 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 national identity of a lot of Western countries has definitely um, it's, it's gone down. People don't see themselves as I like yeah. You and I would still see ourselves as Australian, but what does that even mean? There are probably other groups that we adhere to that have much more value to us than the idea of being Australian. Yeah, it's a very very weak identity mm. of what Australia is. It never used, but well, I don't know because I never lived hundred years ago. But no, because back then that's what they, is... they thought they they thought of themselves as subjects of the British Empire. Yeah, and that too, and and well, you know, being part of things like when you were subject to a world war, that would foster an incredible sense of kinship among all the people, regardless of any other minor differences within a population, when you're all having that shared experience of, of the fear and the, the patriotism and the wanting to survive, that would then uh, create a really strong sense of uh, group identity. Yes. But that doesn't happen on a national level anymore. No. There aren't experiences that we all have in, in the country of Australia. Well, they probably are, but they're, they're very minute compared to what they used to. Which is a well, lot of our job, really. Is well, you know what? A lot of our job is just identifying what these, uh, you know, cultural tropes are. <laughs> yeah. That, Sorry. That's broken. Just leave <laughs> it. <Yeah. laughs> um, so, yeah. so I've so I've just done this uh, web series, um, and this sort of brought this idea to my mind called "Crossing the Line." And what I did was uh, myself and Tima Ray. We wrote <laughs> a little plug there. Subtle. Um, we wrote a series of jokes that would get progressively more offensive on any given topic. So we just released the first episode was Muslim jokes, for example, and we'd um, a comedian would deliver them to a to a person. Either they'd just be sitting on the couch by themselves, or they'd be sitting as a duo. And what happened is when they all came in as strangers, you could t in that first discussion. Oh, and after the set, they'd all have a they'd all participate in a discussion. So they all came in with their unique group identity, which was, and they were very separate. They all, you could just tell they were very combative, that first discussion, and they wanted to butt heads and they wanted to stand up for what they saw as their group identity. But then I think what happened uh, is, I wouldn't say it's, it was an extremely moving experience, but there were points where people were crying and they were, 
sharing emotional stories and um, you know talking about themselves in a, in a deep way and that fostered a sense of unity among that group and I think they actually became a tribe by the end by that last episode the way they discussed the way they uh, they would still debate certain certain jokes for example but you could tell it was in a much more I wouldn't say civil way but it was in a very empath it was it it was in an empathetic way um, because I think that shared experience allowed them to create allowed them to have that sense of group identity amongst themselves that's very interesting yeah so you think that they created a group within the span of how long two days two days i think they did yeah doesn't that say a lot think about that if you go on a a camp or something or you go on a big hiking hike or some sort of challenging experience and you share that with five or six other people even if it is a day you're gonna there's gonna be a sense of uh, connection between all the people who went yeah, through the corporate that world experience. is obsessed with that, aren't they? Just oh, team yeah. building team exercise. Yeah, that was a team building exercise. Yeah, but it, it it's it's it comes from a place of of truth like that. Yeah, that is very team building. And I think it's also the other thing is that you gave them a common goal. Yeah. So they had something to focus on as a group. And then, you know, I always used to look at, uh, think about hazing rituals at, at universities and think that it's just so barbaric. What are they doing? But I do, th I, I can understand some of the ideas behind it because mm. what they're doing is, I wonder, I've always wondered, I wonder if hazing rituals sort of developed organically or there was some, I don't know, the dean or some, some person sort of just said, this is what we're going to do to foster a sense of uh, community among these people. I think they just developed organically and they just evolved as a mechanism to allow that particular yeah, group of people to bond. I think it's intuitive, but I also think that it has something to do with military academies. I think sure. that would have been an offshoot of that. Yeah, and even that, yeah. So you <clears> take you, you take sort of the, the process when it's a new cadet or whatever and they like break them down. I don't know exactly, but from what I can only... Can, well, from what I've seen... Uh, you know, they're very brutal to them <laughs> in those first few weeks and, and months of being in, in the military. Mm. And that is, I think, I think when that unit of people experience that same, uh, well, one, suffering and a, a, a move to that extent through this challenging experience, that just amplifies the sense of unity among them. Because yeah. if a group of people go and do like just go on a walk, for example, yeah, maybe they'll develop some level of kinship. But when it's a a marathon or when it's some, the more arduous the experience, the greater the sense of group identity that mm. will develop mm. from it. I think. But there's also the other element of that's a classic trait of brainwashing. Yeah. How, um, expand. <laughs> <laughs> It's like if you if you keep breaking people down in a group, 
this is what, you know, so, some like the classic example, I guess, is Jonestown. Putting them out in the middle of the... He, de- he deliberately did this. He moved an entire population of American citizens to South America and made them create a society in South America. Now, part of that was because of his paranoia, but another part was that he was a, mass, he was a master manipulator and he knew uh, the dynamics of groups and how they worked. Yeah. And so he knew yeah. that if you put them in the middle of South America, life would be really hard. And yeah. so they would have to develop their own culture. And so as a result of them developing their own culture, and he's influencing that culture, he gets to break down how they oh, think okay, okay. and because they're just like in that state of it's this thing of just like you know a state of total exhaustion being moved out into an environment that they're not used to I mean dude, sure. th- that is what the military does it it brainwashes you into and I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing but it's just it's it's brainwashing you into a certain way of thinking that makes you much more compliant and uh, you know just ready to take orders because that is the most important part of a military operation because mm. you do again have to think like ants mm. Otherwise, yeah. you are just you are not going to be as organized as your opponents. Of course, yeah. If there's one rogue operative who just no, I want to do it this way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The whole unit's I'll pull gonna the die. Grenade pin now. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah I, because the, that's interesting. I, I I've never I've never heard of that before. But well, it, that's what it what all is. What is in common is the the suffering. Like what happens in the military academy is they go through really tough. Uh, conditions and it's that suffering that amplifies the attachment to whatever the identity or the culture is yes and that's because why you start I, relying on other people as yeah well. and that's why i think uh ideologies are more like people who are, are suffering are more prone to fall prey to ideologies mm. no that makes heaps of sense you hear that all the time from people who join cults yeah <coughs> they just start, they find like yeah. a sense of belonging mm. So that's actually a really interesting way that you look at it, which is that, uh, you know, like what, what groups are best, uh, what, what groups best serve me? Yeah, because then it's also a value hierarchy of if you say, okay, this is, I, number one, I'm an Australian, for example, that you value that above all the other groups. Or number one, I'm a, I'm a family man, then you value your family above. Number one, I'm a family man. Number two, I'm an Australian. So then if, a cho- if there was ever a choice where you had to choose between family or country, you'd choose family. Mm. So how do you... Michael, the thing I'm thinking about now is, you know, how do you come up with that hierarchy and um, what are the methods to employ to make those judgments? Or does it happen organically and we don't actually have any control over it? No, I think that... Yes, you are going to be a lot more susceptible to these things than you could hope for, but at least being aware of them, as always, uh, leaves you to being less uh, of prey, I guess, to to ideas and uh, identities that are hitting them. Because this is what I always noticed with, you know, the whole SJW-based argument. And now the whole thing is that that argument has become so tired, but there was a point where everybody online was hitting one of those sides, right? They just moved into mm. whichever of those sides they were. and I think it's, it's still there, man. It's, still, it's there, still there. But have you noticed that the culture is shifting? Have you noticed that it's no longer about... It's no longer about... Uh, because a, a lot of that was just based, at the end of the day, on... Uh, it, it was based a lot on, like, race and gender, um, mm-hmm. now 
I think that what's happening is it's moving towards generation because don't you think that that is the biggest meme of this year is okay boomer. boomer. <laughs> it's millennials versus boomers. Um, I see that that's being much more. It, it's it's what's happening in terms of uh, unifying. I don't know, things. man. There's still a lot of millennials who would call themselves I'm anti SJW and of course that I'm saying that like the culture the culture's there. Yeah. But this that was a long meme. That lasted sure, a long sure. time. That was probably... What were we talking about before? Maybe starting in like 2014, 2015? Uh, yeah, I would say it sort of developed around then. Yeah. I think the boomer meme started, I guess, with the 30-year-old boomer thing, which was just maybe in 2018, 2017, maybe. Yeah. But it's this kind of like these things take a long time to expand, but I'm noticing over and over again what, okay. what I would see before in the comments was a lot of cucks, racist, transphobic, all that crap, right? Uh, okay, and now then, it's more boomer. And now it's more just like, this content's boomer. Like, th- that'll be the, <laughs> yeah, the main right. insult. Yeah, and interesting. And so I think that what is happening is that the generation, and I don't know why this is, is starting to unify under the idea that we are young as opposed to uh, who's a racist and who's not a racist. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like it's... Uh, yeah, it, I th- I think that this is where society is moving. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting, man. I think right now it hasn't gotten to the point that the the SJW and anti SJW no, no absolutely dichotomy not. got to. But don't you think that it it's could, feeling though. stale? I mean, look, I think that one of the main for things us that's it great is about, well, yeah, yes. because we've been in that world for so long. But for so many people, I think that only came into their consciousness in maybe twenty seventeen. Mm. And it probably peaked then, but yeah, I'd say it's going down. I think that I think, and, and this is not really a reflection on our intelligence or anything, but I think it's just because as comedians, we, as we we're just saying, we just we, we a lot of our job is just observing societal trends. Sure. So I think in a lot of ways we're sort of not futurists presentists we're, we're just constantly trying to paint a picture of what society's like at that point sure so i think that because we're we're actually hypersensitive to exactly what you're talking about which is tribes and identifying mm. what those tribes are and commenting on those tribes yeah there's a huge part of being a comedian so then a lot what, of the bread and butter jokes but what you're doing see what we're doing there is we're uh unifying over that group identity of being a comedian which is a it's lot of everywhere. the reason that we bond yeah, that's a, yeah. that's a big part of it. And you know what else this is something that I think is amazing that has been noticed in a book that I was reading years ago now, which is that, um, like what you were saying, how there was that unifying experience of, say, World War One or World War Two. Mm. Our generation's unifying experience was The Simpsons. That was our war. <laughs> Isn't that insane? Yeah, because everybody can sit there and just say, um, I don't know, for instance, no, my son is also named Bort. And that will be like them being like, oh, yeah, so are you into Brook? Yeah, 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 49th Battalion. That is our unifier. Wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> Weird, isn't it? But at the same time, pretty cool. And it makes is a it? lot of sense. <laughs> There's two ways of they looking at that. They fought a war. We, we watched an animation series. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it shows that we, uh, like, because that is something that they're always talking about. Like, oh, snowflakes. That's why we'll never, we'll never beat the boomers, because... Whatever yeah, we don't have sense of group identity they've developed over going through... Well, they didn't actually go through the war. The, the greatest generation, uh, whatever sense of identity they developed through going through a war. I mean, the amount of people that a died. and war. Yeah, and then yeah. even that, they were not... They probably would have experienced the Great Depression. 
Like that generation truly must must really have a strong sense of connection to each other. Yeah. They endured a lot. Mm. Whereas boomers, mm. I mean, what did they endure? Vietnam. The, the PTSD of their there. parent from the war. <laughs> That's yeah. what they More did. of them were beaten <laughs> than us. They did go. No, Vietnam was. And, and the, yeah, cold, the Cold War. Win. Yeah, they had the Cold War. So they, they had, the had that looming war. fear of uh, yeah. nuclear Armageddon. Yeah, and so that would have really like. Oh, the, a common enemy is. That's where group identity. And it, yeah, that, I mean, everyone knows that. But you really, like, the, the older I get, the more I just understand the, how powerful the idea of a common enemy is. Of course. Because the most, the, the most vocal and effective tribes, even if the ones we've been talking about over the last couple of years, say the, the uh, if you call SJWs, even though there's so many like little subgroups there, but their common enemy was, yeah. The r- racists. The racists. Yeah. 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 So they, they, they do whatever it takes to defeat the racists. And then the anti-SJWs, their common enemy is the SJWs. <laughs> whatever it takes to beat them. And then now, and then no, these like new, the, the free, I'm a free thinker. Their common enemy are the extremes of either side. So they do whatever it takes to defeat the extremes. Mm. So every everywhere there's a common enemy. Mm. No, well, absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I think is like very important is trying to determine what the common enemy is. Hmm. that is a really important motivator of how your society is going to be shaped or how your culture is going to be shaped. And the thing is that you actually have power over that. Even in your small circle of friends, you can just by the ideas that you bring into it, you Mm -hmm. are shaping that small little microculture. And so these things, I think that is how memes work. And that's, dude, memes are little snippets of culture. They're little snippets of identity. Yeah. And that's that's how you can kind of determine what how our generation at least communicates with each other, and it'll be part of that. I think is that when you see, because this is why I think it's become so unified against boomers, and that that joke is starting to grow, is because you know what we are? We're kind of like African animals at this point when it comes to the net. In the real world, we're pathetic, but like on the net, we have become. Uh, because we grew up in it, I guess, just yeah. like how cheaters are really fast and have huge claws, and then you come to somewhere like Australia, and there's just kangaroos and you know some snakes. Ooh, you know, there's there's all these animals that just haven't had that hot bit of competition. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. And so I think that's actually like on a really nerdy, incel sort of way. That's what's <laughs> happened on the net. Is that like because there was that whole thing of just like SJWs <laughs> versus the based wow. guys like that? That so all the times the millennials have been shut down in the comment section, they've learned from that. They've learned from it. They've and mutated. Yes, <laughs> they've evolved. Have you ever seen a comment section against boomers and yeah, and, and that like, dude? It is a cheater versus a tortoise. There's no chance. You know, like it's they're getting it's... better, <laughs> but they'll never, they'll never, <laughs> because our brains were still forming. We were we were in our teenage years when uh, when we were exposed to the net. So we uh, we developed our uh, cognitive abilities with the net. Yeah, so we were born we in always it have an advantage it. there. <laughs> but as soon as if the if the internet ever shut down, boomers would just kill us. Of course. And <laughs> yeah, they have the life skills Gen and X. the money. Yeah. But that's but uh, we'd kill Gen Z. Ah oh, man, yeah, they're pretty puss, aren't they? That's true. I just, like, it's nice flexing over someone. <laughs> By the way, I've been looking at our um, iTunes reviews. I looked at one, and it was it was a five star. It was, good. It was like this is a really good podcast. Just stop saying puss. 
No, absolutely not. These are your options, mate. You can either stop watching this or you get exposed. You just have to get immune to puss. Uh, I assume it was one of the um, female listeners. Oh, it could be a man that's like, oh, I don't like that word. <laughs> My girlfriend does hate me saying puss. Oh, she yeah. despises it. And look, this is one thing you've got to learn about guys. For women, isn't it, it is, but like you, mm. you have to learn something about this, all right? Like, it is. if you say that, it's not going to stop. It's going to be exacerbated times ten. It's like that, the bushfires, man. Yeah. You just got to let it burn out by itself. <laughs> you can't, you can't put water on this. It's too big. Well, that actually is an, a really interesting point. Do you think, um, not only men, but certain groups? have an inherently rebellious streak in them. So when you look at teenage boys, for example, they just want whatever the teacher is telling them to do, they want to do the opposite. Bosses. So when when whatever culture you're trying to uh, um, bestow upon the teenagers, they are going to actually rebel and, and do the opposite. I mean, you look at... In the in the sixties, when there was the Cultural Revolution, do you think that part of that was because there was so much, uh, I don't know, Christianity and and conservative values forced upon them, so they just naturally rebelled? Whereas now there's all this like alt right meme culture because of all the the like, well, yeah, for the want of a better word, uh, like phrase, SJW culture that is forced upon teenage boys. No, that's that's a that is exactly what happened. But it's also, yeah, and they, and they are completely oblivious to it as well because my girlfriend, because she's acting now, she goes to a lot of plays and all these plays are written by boomers mm. and they're just getting onto it now. Every play that you see is, oh, why is the net so angry? And they answer their own question because they just keep going back to those tropes of homophobic, sexist, racist, because I feel like mm. our generation is sort of evolving past that point it's just it's it's losing Mm. its edge but it's not losing its edge to the boomers and i think that yeah again this is like a a whole thing about interesting what are the influences on your culture what is happening to it what what is the general thought which is what i think is very interesting about ours yes like with everything else there is a lot of engineering about these identities so for instance obama used to take huge pains and measures to constantly be... Like, one of his most famous quotes is, um, there's not a right America and a left America, there's a United States of America. Mm -hmm. He was always trying to push that narrative. Sure. Um, And that's just one element of it, right? There's all these different... Everybody's Mm -hmm. just trying to push another Those days are over, aren't they? I don't think that would be an effective political strategy now, would it? Yeah, and and Trump doesn't. Trump doesn't push that narrative. Mm. He actually pushes the us versus them. He does. He does. He's mm. yeah. And, and, and well, all of them have some form of um. None of the well, I don't know. You're a you, you know you you're a Bernie guy. It's, do you think he's pushing it? And like the the one percent is the them. Yeah, because yeah, it's exactly what you said. And I remember I remember realizing this when I really started getting into being a, a political YouTuber. I guess I, there was a point where I just looked at my producer and I said, dude. You know what all politics is? It's just a story of who can tell mm. who the enemy is better. It's weaponized group identity. It is. Mm. And that's exactly what... And that's why I think that actually Bernie Sanders is really onto a message that uh, really... if and, that, and that's why there's such a huge media blackout against him. But on that there is 
not a more effective political message than that message, which has always historically been mm-hmm. uh, put down because, you know, the, the elite are the ones that actually own the means of communication, right? So they can constantly be... And that's why I think a huge factor of the reason that all this SJW stuff happened, I honestly think it was because after the global financial crisis, what started appearing as the mainstream message was yeah. that the, it's the 1%'s fault. There was just that idea instilled into most people's minds. So that the, the financial collapse was the result of... It was because of banks. It was because of banking mismanagement. And that freaked them out. And I think that what they did as a response to that was to start pushing this racism, sexism, transphobia narrative to you know make, make these groups disassemble and start fighting against each other because it's not as... Uh, focused enemy but how do you can how even with the power and and resources that um the billionaires in america have how do they how can they influence something like that just what just through the media through what the media is talking about well see, this is the whole thing that i find very scary about it and sorry i know that every time i just go on to propaganda but it is very linked to obviously no, this is, to like yeah. groups sure yeah but this is what's very scary about media is that a lot of what you think is not because you have come to that conclusion. And as we were saying before, yes, a lot of that is family, religion, culture, background, whatever. But there is an underlying message that is constantly being pushed out. And it is from your television, your radio, your internet. Mm. And it's just like what message is being pushed? What yeah, message is being yeah. pushed? And so if you look at like the big political channels on the net, One of them organically grew up, which is, I guess, the Young Turks. But Stephen Crowder didn't grow up organically. Lord of money in oil and cigarettes from that. Vox didn't grow up organically. Lord of money from banks. Now, what do Vox and Stephen Crowder talk about all the time? The culture war. It suits the billionaire class. The Young Turks talk about about that. that What? Don't they? Oh, absolutely, they do. And I think, and what you're saying as well, right, that there is this you know, you're creating these cultures and that's what I find very uncomfortable about watching the Young Turks when they just start getting like all cuck and so I start moving away <laughs> from them, right? But as soon as I start talking about the banks again, man, I'm right back in. Okay. You know, so I think it's just this thing of, if you, if you look at it from every single media perspective, what are they pushing constantly? It is a culture war and it has been happening in the 90s, say when it comes to America, for instance, with... Uh, quote-unquote conservative radio, your Rush Limbaugh's, Fox News, um, you know, Michael Savage, all of these people. Uh What they mostly have been talking about since the 90s is a culture war, that there is a war against Christmas, that there's a war against Christians, that there's a, you know... um, uh, there's there's anti-racism. They were the sure. ones that started pushing that. And then I think what happened is that the other aisle, the, the you know, the, the media that is not controlled by oil so much as banks, banks started pushing the, like, you're a racist, you're a sexist. Do, you, do you think that's a concerted effort by banks to actually, or, yeah, the, the 1% to actually do something like that? Or do you think it I know for a fact it is. I know for a fact it is. Yeah. Because I knew someone from pedestrian. And, like, they were telling me that, uh, and, and it was exactly what happened. Like, when, when I first came out in 2014, 2015, they were pushing my stuff a lot. They really liked the message that I was pushing. Mm-hmm. Then they noticed that I didn't, you know, I didn't fit into the, you know, the new face of whatever, like, the left. They decide what the left is. Is again, why I hate those phrases of left and right, because yeah, it's just, sure, sure, sure. it's arbitrary. You get to decide, someone else decides what it is, and everyone's mm-hmm. just like, yeah. So, like, it's... 
So then, you know, the face of the left just became like, are you a racist or a sexist? And dude, I make race. I, well, I the- refuse to not make jokes about women or transsexuals or gay people, but I also make fun of bogans. I also make fun of, you know, just like you're up, like, I you guess know, the, the uptight the- white male. Yeah. It's just, that's being a comedian. You, yeah. you make fun of all se- sure. sex of society. For the purpose know? of this discussion, you could, we, we could call it the, I guess, the cultural left and the economic left. Couldn't yes. we? Okay. Well, the, yeah, let's just use that as a guiding point, but like, you know, under, under great pains and restraint, I say. No, I know I'm with you there. <laughs> You but can't help. You gotta just. Use you have to terms. do it. When you're talking I don't like about doing it either. But yeah. it's so intrinsic to the uh, just to the world today. The left versus right, all that. Yes. But so, okay. But so, the, and then so the thing is, what what happened is that they got a new manager of content, I think it was, and they started saying that they were starting that you know we're going to be pushing this. What they call now, I guess, like woke agenda. This was back in 2016, and the reason that they were doing it is because they figured out that they could create little miniature revolutions in society. Like if you just focus on gay marriage for a year straight, everybody just starts talking about gay marriage. That becomes the culture war. But the thing is, if you're focusing on gay marriage for a year, you're not focusing on the fact that wages have stagnated. You're not focusing on the fact that Australia doesn't have a climate policy, or that there's a spatial extinction, or the fact that the, you know, like we are on the verge of a housing collapse. Like all these things get mm-hmm. pushed to the side. What you focus on is gay marriage, probably the least consequential thing you could be talking about. But that's what all media is focused on. And the reason that they want that focused on it is because it makes it, it like you know, as soon as you start having that culture war. Banks like A and Z will start coming out with like gay TMs and we're so pro gay and like mm-hmm. all these other companies start doing it because it's like a social so, revolution that's happening okay. that's corporate friendly. So there are common enemies within the within the people versus the the people who are controlling those people are not uh, ignored. Then no, yeah, it's it's a classic state of like divide and okay. conquer. It's a very old strategy. So well, then that what that means then is. Um, well, they're just very aware of the power of group identity. They're very aware. Well, I don't know who is exactly because, you know, I'm imagining the bankers, they don't really give a shit about this stuff, but there are some, there are people that definitely generate what culture is. Absolutely there is. That is a huge reason why Modi, is that how you say his name in India? Modi. 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 I should know again. Like <laughs> I know. I so think it's, many I think Indian like references Modi. that I've just disappointed. <laughs> yeah, Drop oh, the ball man. on. Yeah. Um, but like a, a huge reason for why he is so powerful now a you know he has the entire banking system behind him in India he has the media behind him but he also was the one that started pushing this agenda because he just realized you know India is what 85% Hindu 15% Muslim he started really pushing that agenda of just being like we are a Hindu country and so you, you, it was a genius political move. I don't know why they, they probably started moving away from it under the Gandhi days or something like that. But it started unifying that 85% of society. So there are people that generate these big cultural narratives. So that's what I'm, that's why I'm really interested in your idea that you like, you're thinking about it from the phrase of like, you're an individual and what cultural narrative should I be attached no, to? Well, I'm not saying I'm an... In, that's the point. You, you, you can't no, be you immune are. to those group... I know, I know. ...identities. I know you can't be immune to it. But I think you... Well, I hope you can have some level of control over which ones you value over others and which ones you can, to some extent, choose to be a part of. So there's certain ones you just... You can't choose to be a part of. Like, I'm Indian, and I can't choose to not be a part of that group identity. But are you, though? 
because I don't see you as like th- like okay like skin well I mean tone, racially yeah. I, I there are like genetic group identities that yes. you just can't ignore. but mimetically like culturally I don't see not you as really, a particularly no. Indian dude yeah no not really yeah you're a but big... that's a different group idea like Indian culture versus Indian race they're two different group identities I would say do you reckon yeah. So what's the difference then? Well, because it, it, your race is just the but is that an arbitrary I... gen- genetic factors that determine your the way you look. But is that like is that an identity though, or is that just the way you look? Well, it is still an identity. Like okay, but if you choose it to be an identity, it is. And you know what? I think that's like well, a this huge is when thing. we get into uh, discussions. Well, a lot of discussions where what we'd talk about, what the, the cultural left would, would talk about, which is how immune can you possibly, how immune can you be to uh, things like your racial identity and your gender identity and, and whatnot? So I've always said strive to not, to not be a part, to, to, to move beyond that. But the, the counter argument to that would be the way society operates you can't possibly be immune to certain aspects of that uh, racial identity. So, for example, um, no matter what, if it, like, if you're black in America, there's going to be certain things that you experience um, that other people of that same identity will experience. And as much as you say, I'm going to strive to be an individual, it's impossible because there are just certain experiences you can't be immune from no i honestly think that that is just pure negative thinking and i, I think like you know exactly this point is like put in is it's just like look may, maybe they might have to strive harder or something like that but you can change your identity for instance when people like mm-hmm. I, I think that a classic thing of that when they're always just saying that you know like black people are just uh, uh unwarrantedly targeted by the police yes that's probably true um but also, like, dude, like, I don't think that Obama's getting frisked, you know? And I don't think that even if he wasn't Obama, as in the guy that you know, I don't think that he would be because he'd just be, like, dressed like a lawyer. He, he was, like, a dude that worked in, I can't remember what field of law or whatever, but, like, you know, he was dressed in a suit and he was walking around the right parts of town. Sure. So it didn't look weird, out of place. Okay, I'm going to be the SJW here, I guess. But and just more so, I agree with you to a certain extent. I don't. I think there. I think there's a balance somewhere in between there where you should strive to not let any disadvantages of of certain group identities get you down. But there are there are some aspects that you can't ever be completely immune to. So the fact, I guess, a counter argument to to that would be the fact that. Well, he would have had to have dressed in a, in a suit and he would have had to have gone through the, the nice parts of town. And that's not the experience of someone who isn't, isn't black. They could still wear, I don't know, baggy jeans and a hoodie or whatever and not have to deal with that. Um, so, don't you think that's insular thinking, though? Because there's also, like, a thing of, like, man, if you see, like, a, a, a white dude just dressed in, like, really baggy jeans with, like, one of those... Uh, one of those gator hats that they have in the south and a, and a loose singlet, yeah. you're going to be like, that guy's scary trailer trash. Sure. Okay, but then there are certain ones that, are, you know, you, there are certain statistics that you can't... So, for example, have you ever read Freakonomics? Yeah. 
So when they send they send in resumes with uh, like stereotypically black names, and overall they weren't. Um, and it was a pretty. I'm pretty sure they had a a fairly substantial sample space. And uh, if they had a black name on the resume, they were less likely to get the interview or something like that. Right. And I think that that is, yes, okay, that is definitely a, uh, but I think that this is what I'm, like, it's, it's culture, I think, goes deeper than race. So, for instance, if you are sure. saying that, like, I don't know, like, uh, yeah, my name's Barry or something like that, you're changing it to be the culture of what America is, like the mainstream part of the culture or whatever, sure. as opposed to if your name's like Shaniqua or whatever, right? Yeah. Um, yes, and those people are grown up in that culture, so it's hard to lift yourself out of that culture because mm. that's what you see around you, mm. right? But what I'm saying is that you can shift your circumstances in a good way is what we're talking about now is just moving the way that you see yourself what tribe do you see yourself as I, do you see yourself as a black man or yeah, yeah. do you see yourself as a businessman 100 you know? i agree with that 100 percent. you need to you need to not perceive yourself just as that identity which is in certain circumstances statistically disadvantaged however there as you said it is harder for those people to then pull themselves out yeah, but I think that that is part of just, just, it's hard for anybody to pull themselves out of their circumstances. Even, yeah. Okay, if, even if you are an extremely wealthy kid, right, it is going to be hard for you to properly empathize with people from, say, the working class or people in, you know, hood communities and things, right? Because that's what you know. Yeah. It's the same thing as that's what they know. But the point is that, you know, what you're saying again is that you, look, you don't have to be confined by the cultures that have been assigned to you. So then, okay, well, if that's... Uh, I, yes, I, I, look, I agree with that. But then how does that then differentiate if that's the, the rebuttal to the uh, left-wing cultural argument, let's say? How does that then differentiate to the left-wing economic argument where it seems to be very based in class distinction? Mm. So why, what's different then to saying to um, a minimum wage worker, well, you don't need to see yourself as a minimum wage worker and you can pull yourself out of those circumstances. What's the phrase? Pick yourself up by the bootstraps. bootstraps. Yeah. Well, the first thing that I would say to that is that, and it's the same thing when you're talking about someone called Shaniqua that lives in the hood, right? Yeah. We're talking about levels of intelligence here that somebody who is abnormally intelligent is probably going to move up in society because they're going to be able to grasp very complicated ideas and be able to execute them in a way that will be useful to someone that is willing to pay for those skills because it's a rare skill, right? That's usually the way that it's, like, determined, right? Yeah. So the first thing that I would say is, like, uh, you know, it's all very well and good to say pull yourself up from your own bootstraps to a certain sector of society, based on how okay. intelligent they are, right? And how capable they are of it. But say so that somebody saying, has... So uh, uh, are, you, are you saying people from like the hood then are not intelligent? No, I'm saying some people from the hood are intelligent, but okay. it's like every other sector of society, right? There's just yeah. some people that are smart and some people that aren't smart. Yeah. And so some people that aren't smart are just going to be in the hood for the rest of their life. So the question then becomes, does the rest of society owe 
something to that sector of society. Now, first of all, I would argue that they do. But the other thing that I would say about when it comes to these minimum wage questions and things is like when you're talking about something like minimum wage, it is very different to when you're talking about culture. Because when you're talking about culture and you're talking about you know people that see themselves as black or people that see themselves as rich or whatever, right, that is kind of just an idea in your head. But when you're talking about economics, that, that's a measurable real-world circumstance. Mm -hmm. And it's also about utility, right? It's, it's a much more practical way of seeing the world. So when you're saying to, you know, uh, working class, you don't need a minimum wage. What you need to do is become an entrepreneur and move up. That's just not how an economy works. <laughs> like, you need people that are serving you French fries. You need farmers, all of these sectors of society. Otherwise, you like the bankers. Like, how, the, how is the banker going to like uh, cook anything if they don't have a Jamie Oliver cookbook and you know shit from Coles? They don't know how to gather that stuff. Yeah. So it's like all of society needs to be working in a certain way for uh, even people at the top to be in the position that they are, which is actually another reason why Australia has mm -hmm. had 30 years of economic growth, right? And a huge mm -hmm. part of that was, was that you were making sure that the working class had a stable amount of money because they're the people, rich people, when they get money, what they do is they just siphon it off to offshore. But when the See, working do, class... So do... The, because the argument, again, the counter-argument to that, I know you've mentioned that in other uh, podcasts because, again, the counter-argument to that is... Well, they they reinvest the the money and they they build more businesses and 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 whatnot and they. Well, look at the statistics. Yes, there's a sugar rush that happens after that. There is a tax cut, like what's happening in America at the moment, right? You see this explosion in growth. Mm -hmm. Eventually, what happens is that money funnels its way. You know, like you know, they'll, they'll you know constantly be talking about I don't know, say, look at the steelworks that are opening up. This small car dealership. All of these things can work because of ta tax cuts, right? But what do those businesses do to expand? They siphon their money into banks. Yeah. Now, banks, their only output, I guess, is investing in things. So they are just getting funneled all of this money. Eventually, all that money trickles essentially into banks. Um, and then those money, and a few oil companies and things, right? It's always the same. So then those banks move the money out. And it's just evident in the fact that, say, in America, for instance... Up to 50% of the GDP what's the, is offshore. What's the advantage of the banks moving? When you say moving it out, what, are they, what do they just Avoiding tax. That's what they're trying to so avoid. They put it in tax havens. They're putting it in tax havens, which makes the society poorer. Then isn't there, then the argument would be, we'll lower the co corporate tax rate. But the so question, there's no incentive then for them to put it Yes, and offshore. that is a very complicated economic argument. And you can argue both ways. But what you cannot argue hmm. is that these corporations get politicians elected that make it so that they don't follow those tax laws. So, for instance, in Australia, there were 650 companies last year that paid no nothing in tax, huge corporations. So their tax rate is effectively zero. The other, the other huge point is that, like, you know, Singapore has a tax rate of 2.5%. I think Ireland has a 0% tax rate. Mm -hmm. Do you want to have those societies? If you want to have those societies, move towards that. But if you want to have a society that, say, like Norway, you should have high taxes and you should make sure that there are politicians in power that are actually willing to enforce those laws. Because last year mm -hmm. we saw, I think, $650 billion manoeuvred offshore. Well, no, no, sorry, the 650 corporations. So it was like something like $700 billion. That's just in one year. $700 billion taken out of the country. That is $700 billion that is not circulating in the economy. Yeah. These are huge amounts of money. So this is the difference. But, okay, but we're, and again, I don't want to get, because we've had a podcast where we've spoken about this sort of stuff. Sorry. I just do want to, no, but it is interesting. And I but I'm trying to just, just 
basically when safe. It, okay, but yeah, when yeah. it goes offshore and, and so there's 700 billion, it's just going into a tax haven, is it? Mm. And it and it's what what by the own the shareholders of the the bank, it's their money, is it, or is it ostensibly? But is it? At the end of the day, but who's what? what I just don't know. What's the incentive for this bank then to just? Who is going to get that money? What is it? Nothing. No, no one's getting that money. What do they do? Why? They're avoiding tax because if the if the money's there, then they're going to have to pay. I don't know, thirty percent of that seven hundred billion dollars. But if they're just putting it, what? Eventually, are they going to bring it back, or what are they? They're just leaving like a yes, and that's the huge problem. Like a treasure chest or something. Yes. That's what's happening worldwide. This is not just Australia. This is not just America. This is all Western. It's all democracy. Like, so it's you're everyone. telling me there's somewhere where there's just like billions. <laughs> yeah, billions dude, it's of like dollars. an unbelievable Pirates of the Caribbean amount. Like just the, those treasure chests are nothing. That that okay. that is one cargo ship to them. It's not even a cargo ship. It's just one of those old crap sail ships. We're talking about cargo ships of money. And so the thing is, like worldwide, this is what's happening. All money is okay. getting siphoned into these tax havens, and it is not building societies. This is what's really scary about these things, because if that money is fluctuating throughout society, and you're putting that money into tax, and then those governments can then allot that money into things that are going to build the society. So this is where like the question, sure. like, and as opposed to that, it's just sitting there rotting. And it's getting to the point where these companies are so powerful that, like, for instance, like I've used this example before, and I'll, it's just like, you know, the Labor Party said, we should have some of the money from the mining tax because those are our resources. So the people of Australia should be profiting from those resources. It mm -hmm. makes perfect sense. That's what Norway did. They have a trillion dollars in savings. Uh, the mining companies, when they said it was a mild amount, as well, it was not a mild amount, but it was, I think, 40%. They were trying to take 40% of the profits from taxing, uh, from, from mining companies, right? Um, mining companies. Is that a mine? That's, that's a lot of money. It's not a minor amount. Yeah, it's a huge amount of money, but yeah. like, you know, you're still getting 60% of the profit of our resources. Yeah, I would right, argue right. that we should be getting 100% of it because it's ours. It's not BHPs. This yeah. is the Australian crown. Then that goes back to the idea of um, private ownership of land, doesn't it? So that the business that bought that particular land owns yes. the yes. Uh, profit from that land. Exactly. Which is, I think, a complete rort. Or, you know, like I think that it, it, it's not... It shouldn't be that black and white. If you're talking about a nation's natural resources, I strongly believe that that nation should be profiting from it. And it's just, it's just common sense, really, at the end of the day. Like, like again, what is that money doing instead? It is sitting in an offshore account. What could mm -hmm. it be doing? It could be making us one of the educational powers of the, of the world, mm -hmm. as opposed to where we are now, which is behind Kazakhstan. It could be giving us world-class hospitals. It could be giving us world-class fire engines so we could actually fight the bushfires. There's an idea. Yeah. Like all of these things it could be invested in. Okay. But instead it's just sitting around, rotting, all right. not helping anyone. So that's, that's the whole moral argument to it. But I'm saying that there's like a difference between an economic argument and a cultural argument. Okay, of saying yeah, that I was about to say we could go back and forth on this for a while, and I don't necessarily I'm not necessarily like on the other side. Um, I just well one I'm just for the purpose of playing devil's advocate, but two I just uh, yeah I'm just interested in questioning some of the the assumptions. What I'd be interested in in asking you uh, is, do you think relating it back to the idea of group identity? Do you think the group identity that you've um, that you've committed to uh, has, hasn't allowed you to objectively, uh, well, first of all, it's the common enemy there is that the banks and the 1%. Mm. So do you think then it's, you're ever being purely objective in, in your criticism of them? 
because you have the group identity um, and they are the common enemy there? No, and that's a good question. And that's that's a really good point. And that, that goes back to my other point, which is that you do not know what reality is. You can only sort of educate yourself and have like a, a, a better map than other people would, right? Sure. So yes, obviously my criticisms of the banks, in fact, I would argue that they're too light because I don't know enough of the shenanigans about it and you ask economists and they'll just go on for hours yeah. about the atrocities that they're committing. Right. But, uh, no, you I know, know... I know nothing, really. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, what I, what I would say is that uh, what, yeah, it's exactly what you were talking about. The Which politics, is, the aim of politics is hmm. what enemy should you be taking shots at? Okay, so, so you've are chosen... you being fair to that enemy? No, they're an enemy, right? Yeah. But you need an enemy. That's what, that's what you're saying forges identities. And I think you're 100% right about it. What about, do you think, do you think there's some value in the idea of the enemy being more of an abstract thought? So you take, you know, I have my criticisms of uh, religion, for example, but if you say that the enemy is not necessarily a group of actual people, but it's an idea like sin, if sin is the enemy, could that then create a, a in, in, in some regards, a better society because we're fighting something that is an abstract idea versus actual people? It's a good question. See, because the, the, the fact that you use the word abstract, though, makes me think no. Because mm. I think that what you should be doing constantly is trying to figure out what is real. You shouldn't be trying mm. to get into these ideas. Again, like oh, but the, the I idea mean, of that left, abstract, abstract thought then becomes real, tangible. Um... Becomes real, tangible outlines. But what I'm saying is when you think about abstract thoughts yeah. or, you know, purposefully abstract thoughts like left, like sin, yeah. What happens then is that you have an interpreter that interprets to people what that is. So, for instance, when it comes to sin, mm. you have a priest telling you what is and isn't sin. If that's what you're making the common enemy. So they get to decide what it is, and that's just based off of their values. So that I don't know if that's a good idea. What if you created an ideology where there isn't that... Uh... Uh, it, it takes away the middleman of the priest and it's just the the indivi the individuals are unified through that the group identity but the the common enemy is an abstract idea like sin for example but that's something you fight within yourself but do you think that you could without a middleman no i'm just i don't know i'm just yeah uh, i don't know i don't dude i think that like yes someone like you and I think that it makes a lot of sense when you see your worldview, right? Because obviously you were very good at maths at school. You were very intelligent. You came from a family that uh, clearly valued education and pushing yourself, right? Um, so as a result of that, the way that you that's see why, the That's why I'm an Indian group identity, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but is that, that's a cultural thing, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's yeah, like... Yeah. Yeah, I think if you're going to say anything, yeah, that, that would be the difference between cultural and racially Indian. But there's, be, like, these are elements that you have taken from that culture, sure. right? Um, and so as a result of that, I think that you see the world as like this very, this thing of like, you can make up your own choices and everyone can think through these things logically. But dude, not everyone does. My biggest case in point to that is Twitter. There's so many idiots in the world, dude. Like, they, and they and they just look up to a messiah they have the little messiahs in their heads you know so uh, I, I, don't, I don't necessarily believe uh when you 
So do you think, I think everyone can truly be individuals and, and make up their own minds and not have deities and... I think if you think about it, you you uh, you, you realize like, uh, no, that probably doesn't make sense. But I think that your natural inclination is, mm. no, just think about it and make up your own mind and just, uh, you know, try and see things in a level-headed fashion because that's the way that you interpret the world. Yeah, I, that's very true and that could definitely be the case. But when I say something like, what if there's an ideology without the middleman, that ideology itself doesn't necessarily have to be a rational ideology it can be very it can be highly rational and, and based on you know firing up the emotional uh, engine within within the human which i think is necessary to to actually get people uh passionate about a certain ideology so what's i what's an example well i don't know that's why i'm saying there isn't one that exists like that so yeah, look i think but the closest would be something like i yeah it uh, like a really If it's someone like an evangelical, but who is ve also very introspective, because isn't it? I don't know, and I don't know. Maybe, look, the Christian people listening can comment, but as far as I'm aware, the evangelical Christians uh, are the ones that believe like you don't need the the hierarchies of the church, and you can just you have a personal relationship with God and and Jesus. No, because man, evangelicals are as hierarchical as it gets. Yes, I know. Then they have so maybe the they, they propagate that. Yeah, yeah, they might propagate that, but that's not how it works. No, that's that's true. So, but if you're talking about mm. somebody who's not religious but uses those same elements and inspires you, <laughs> okay, it's pathetic that I'm going to say this, but it's, this is what I genuinely think. I think it is Tony Robbins, dude. I think that's I, the closest no, I, thing to what you're thinking yeah. about. Hundred percent. I think I agree that, with you there. Yeah, he and and the fact that he has that worldview of I am not your guru. Essentially, what he's trying to do constantly is that that is his whole shtick is figuring out what your limiting beliefs are, yeah. disassembling those limiting beliefs, and building up a new story in your own mind that pushes you forward. So he's essentially saying what you're saying, and he just kind of just does the practical work of that. So he is that. Mm. He would be the closest thing to having like a non-religious evangelical that kind of makes you believe in yourself as opposed to believing in God. That's what he would be doing. Okay. And then, you know, figuring out what your narratives are in your head and trying to figure out which of those he would say are destructive as opposed to constructive and keeping the constructive ones there, demolishing yeah. the destructive ones and replacing them with better beliefs. And I think that that is what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's but I think someone like Tony Robbins can only exist in the context of the world that we we have today as a uh, as a sort of complementary to the world that we have today. I don't think you can build an entire society on someone like maybe you can. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, can you? Pot I don't know. Potentially. Yeah. See, that's the whole thing. Is that like yeah? He is just yeah. He is building better individuals. Yeah, and he's tailored his message to the world we have today with its already established group identities. Whereas if he was the per, the pervasive, the, the main identity in a society or someone similar to him, I don't think that would work. It could, I don't know. It might. And he is, uh, the thing is like, he's still a man. He is very pervasive to the culture and time that he grew up in because Tony Robbins, I mean, Two things spring to my mind when I think of the 80s. Tom Cruise and Tony Robbins. They're just 80s men that are still balling now. And 
<laughs> the worldview that he's in. Greed see, for instance, is good, man. Yeah, greed <laughs> is good. That's how he sees the world. He loves banks, loves CEOs, thinks Reagan was the best president of all time. He has that 80s mentality of how the world is. Yeah. And so he pushes those those narratives and cultures just like how and like our generation is kind of defined i guess as we were talking about by the simpsons and are you an sjw or (laughs) 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 no our our generation because we've had that the yes the boomers are becoming the common enemy our generation is defined by the the premise that our boomers had it easier than us yeah but we are also like the second greatest like we've had the second greatest conditions yeah, pretty no, much ever that's not good am enough am I a damn boomers two? they had it so much ah. easier <laughs> that's it man yeah I think that's uh, what's yeah that, that's that's kind of the zeitgeist of what's happening now so I guess the, the whole question is and this is what this is what marketing talks about all the time as well is how do you create cultures because man I don't know if you've had this conversation but I've, I've had this happen to me so many times where mm-hmm. You know, there's some dude in Surrey Hills that shouldn't be dressing the way that he's dressing at his age. It's getting a bit sad, and it's just like, come there's on. There's a lot of those guys out there. By the way, anyone, any international viewers or listeners, Surrey Hills is the, uh, I wouldn't call it the hipster suburb of Sydney. It's it's the corporate hipster suburb corporate of Sydney. Corporate hipster suburb of Sydney. Yeah. Brooklyn, maybe, at this point. I don't think that's hipster anymore. It's too expensive. It's too gentrified. That's so Yeah, and Brooklyn's not... Is it corporate? No. Yeah. But I can imagine that there would be a lot of those... It's like you know, San... Boutique marketing. True, yeah. It's, it's probably like San Francisco, but a suburb. Yeah. That's, that's Surrey Hills in a nutshell. Yeah. And so, anyway, those guys come up to me and uh, talk to me about, I don't know, some like short film that idea that they've got or something or like, a you know, <laughs> like some branding opportunity or whatever. And so they come up to me and they always say this of just being like, man, how did you do it? How'd you, how'd you create your culture? Like you've created your own little mini culture. How did that happen? They're obsessed with that idea that really? marketers are obsessed with the idea of culture because they understand that okay. that's how you sell things, mm. which is really perverse way of thinking about it and i think that that's the the reason that i was able to create a culture is because i'm not thinking about how to sell something to them Mm. they've got like higher principles than that and i think people can kind of sense that but inadvertently you are selling you're selling a persona to people yes but uh, that's the difference you haven't you haven't sort of yeah you haven't gone into it thinking i'm here to sell something it's yeah it's it's not as uh, but you have but it has happened. It's not as cynical and self-interested as that. Yeah. It's a really disgusting way to see the world. And maybe you can do it and you can latch onto it. But that's, that is the, that is what marketers do. They find people that have generated a culture and then they sell shit to it. Like, dude, the classic example, I guess, is just, uh, you know, um, African-American hood culture, which is the, the epitome of no money. Is, is it extremely poor, basically a third world country within a first world country. But what do you see all rich, not anymore, but before you would see all rich white kids dressing like kids from the hood or like, you know, gangsters yeah. from the hood or whatever, yeah. right? And so they had found a culture, those guys just, because they have so much confidence in themselves, they made crap clothes, like baggy jeans, baggy hoods, cool, 
Mm. And then people with money started clicking onto that. Yeah, right. So I think that that's how they exploit those things. Yeah, they're selling a group identity, aren't they? They're selling an identity. You're cool. That's the main thing, isn't it? Oh, how sad. That's it. So lame. I'll buy these clothes to to be cool. But you're so... But you're... So exposed when you're a teenager. Yes. Not now. <laughs> Although there are a lot of people our age that still fall into that. Yeah, and it's just uh, like how introspective do you get? Because otherwise, if you don't start, which is another thing that I'm very, very impressed that you're thinking about that question. I think that that is the beginning of that. That yeah yeah you you are creating because I was talking about it myself help channel the other day. You have the power to create your own identity. Yep. So why are you letting society dictate what your identity is? Which is, I think, is that thing that you just have that natural repulsion to. So, so for instance, where you're just like, kind of like, dude, I'm not really... I, in- sorry. sorry. <laughs> like, you're just like, oh, look, I'm not really Indian. You know, like, you, you don't see yourself as that, really. Like, it's, it's something that's sort of there, but it's not, like, who you are. And it's the same with all these SJWs and things, right? Like, they see themselves as a proud woman or whatever. And, like, you know, mm. the, the, uh, you know the base ones see themselves as, like, warriors of freedom or just hating feminists is their identity. But, like, mm. these are really blurry and also, I think, societally assigned roles. And I th- but I think these people often, more often than not, in the same way uh, religion, people who are suffering really attach themselves to religion, the people who attach themselves uh, to the utmost to these sorts of ideologies that you're talking about are people who are suffering and have also felt as though they've been hard done by by the by the other mainstream culture. So if you feel like you don't, if you don't fit in or if you don't uh, if you're at the bottom of the the um mainstream human hierarchy you're very prone to fall into these subcultures because you get a sense of purpose and you get it's mm. the same it's why like mm. it's why like all these incels are going out killing people and it's why these like 18 year old muslim dudes go and join isis because they oh, i'm powerful now because this is i'm at the, i'm not at the bottom of the hierarchy anymore yeah there is not much difference in this. I would, I would argue there's not much difference in the psychological makeup of an extreme feminist and an extreme anti-SJW. No. They're both no. people who are, who are suffering and have latched on to these ideas to but give them a sense the of power. Yeah, look, suffering in the Buddhist term, like it's all in their head, I think, most of the time. I think, and again... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Think, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so they just kind of... Come but that's, up, that's still a very... Powerful suffering. Yeah, well, that's the, that's the only suffering, they'd argue, is just mental. Yeah. Otherwise, it's just pain. Mm. But if you're suffering, it's because you're inflicting it on yourself. And so, yeah, I think that that's what's... Yeah, you're so right. That That is exactly what that is. But I see that as an extremely narcissistic, stupid, and um, insular way of seeing the world as but, being like, I am a man or yeah, I yeah. am a woman. But that's not going to... That's not going to... And then this is another thing I want to... I know we've talked a lot already, but another thing I wanted to explore is how to get someone out of a group identity that could potentially be dangerous. And when you say things like, and I agree with you, it's a narcissistic and insular way, but that is not going to change them. No. That just feeds in... The most powerful of group identities are ones where it's... um, What is it called? It's not a non-falsifiable... 
ideology, but it's it's that it's the it's the idea that any criticism or uh, any sort of uh, uh, any opposition to that particular identity feeds into the narrative of that identity. So by you as a man criticizing the extreme feminist, it feeds into the identity like he doesn't he's a man, therefore he doesn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah but that's the way that everywhere it's um, Israel Folau saying, "Oh, the bushfires were because." We legalized gay marriage. Yeah. And any tough times is because God is, is testing me. Well, then people are just going to be like, you're crazy. And it's like, no, this is just God testing me. Mm. It's all of them. They just, those are the most powerful ones. Because how do you get someone out of that? Because then when you say to them, this is, if you just say to them, this is wrong, you're narcissistic, you're, you've been misguided. That criticism is built into the identity as uh, well, one that was that's going to happen when you latch onto this. Uh, They'll come up with a lot of mental group, defenses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah. It, if anything, it strengthens their attachment to the identity. Yeah. So why would they want to go? Because if their if their previous like before uh, latching onto this identity was that they were suffering mentally, albeit mentally, then why would they? They'll do as me- as much mental gymnastics as possible to not have to go back to that state of suffering. Mm. So that is a really, that's an extremely challenging thing, isn't it? How do you actually get people out of extreme ideologies like that? I think that there's, there's, there's like, look, you yourself don't actually, you probably don't have the skills. I probably don't have the skills to do that. But I would imagine that certain psychologists, someone like Tony Robbins, that is what he does. He goes to people that are, you know, in, in part of those, I don't know, gangs or something in like the inner, inner city suburbs of, the, of America and gives them a different story for them to latch on to. But I mm. think that that's what you do. You first go into their world, you understand where they're coming from and mm. as a result of understanding where you're coming from, you understand where their leverage points are, why they want to ha- be attached to that, mm. why they want to be attached to that identity, what are they getting out of it? Mm. And he uses the framework of just being like, there's significance, there's a yeah. there's a long for significance, there's a long for connection. Power. There's longing for, yeah. Well, that's, that's significance. Well, yeah. That's, yeah. that's like, the, these are very broad terms, right? But like, you know, connection, they're looking for... Um, uh, stability they're looking for variety or they're looking for growth or they're looking for contribution like those are the things those are the vessels that you have in life right mm-hmm. so say for instance that i don't know say some like mra activist is doing that because he feels that his power has been taken away by women you know mm-hmm. you, you have to be able to like understand that that is the reason that mm. he is an mra person basically because mm-hmm. he was like burned by some lost flame in the past or yeah, whatever, right? And, and by saying to him, oh, you're an incel, you're an insecure man, that's not going to That's not gonna work. No. Not at all. No. And yet that's how the main, well, that's how sort of mainstream culture that is against all these tribalistic ideologies addresses the issues, by mostly by insulting the people who have fallen into these ideologies. Yes. By saying you're stupid. <laughs> yeah, that's going to... That's going to get them out of it. Well, it depends when you're talking about like on a social level or personal level, right? Because I think that I implement that a lot uh, in a lot of my YouTube videos. I think that I'm constantly doing that because it's, yeah, again, it's you're that telling people thing. they're stupid. You say, no, you're saying they're like, isn't that type of person stupid? Smart people think like this, mm. you know, you're doing that constantly because yeah, as you said before, when it comes to politics, you need to identify enemies. 
So on a broad level, yes. But like when on an individual level, yeah, if you tell someone they're stupid, they're just going to retreat more into it. Mm-hmm. I think that, yeah, as a result of that, once you figure out what their leverage point is, back to the MRA guy, I guess, if you were saying that he is uh, the, the way that he is because he was like burned in the past and he feels like he's lost his power, what you have to do is come up with a story for that guy yeah. that is different. Like it's, so, so if, for instance, it's just being like, and women offers, didn't take power sure. away from you. And it you offers know? those same vessels that you were talking about. It still has to offer the significance yes and the yeah and the value yeah yeah so it, clearly he's motivated by significance in life so if you just say that like you know you're if you explain that to him in a way that hits his vessel so you say for instance that like you constantly talking about women uh ruining your life means that women are ruining your life like in your head, yeah. you have given your power to them. And then that guy will sit there and he'll just be like, well, I don't want my power taken away. And so then you just say that like, yeah, so what you actually do is you just, you know, get on with life and you get a job instead of complaining sure. all the time and living at your parents' but does that, house. But does that still, that sounds quite, not to, uh, you know, not to, I'm sure you've probably experienced success with that strategy, but it sounds a bit simplistic. Just saying to him, oh, that one that one little point that you're giving women power by by complaining about them therefore stop doing it is that really going to help someone who's really immersed in that ideology well as always it depends how immersed they are but i i will say this after 9 11 um the fbi were took one guy into custody who was a connection to Mm al-qaeda and was organizing 9 11 and he was known as a hard nut zealot in uh the 9-11 community uh, like you know hated americans absolutely despised them and when he went to america he didn't obviously contact any other americans he was just staying in his apartment block orchestrating these things mm. when the fbi took him in he was fully expecting that uh, so sorry first of all i'll just say this that they gave him cookies and he said like i can't eat cookies and they're like oh yeah we know you're like not lactose intolerant I mean, you're lactose intolerant, so these ones don't have milk in them or whatever. And then he broke down and cried because he realized that, like, he had orchestrated all this suffering and affliction and all the things that he was learnt about Americans was kind of a lie. Like, Americans are kind of just... They're all different people, right? They're not like this one enemy that he was, like, conditioned to think back in, I don't mm. know, Saudi Arabia or whatever. And he saw that in that one act, there was, like, an act of kindness there. Where so you got to show like, that... So if you're part of the common enemy, you got to show you're not the enemy. You have to show that you're not the enemy in some way, obviously. Yeah. yeah. You have to be able to diffuse them and know that you're trying to understand their world. Mm. That is 101 what interrogators do. They, yeah, they try okay. and establish that they're there to, like, just... Un- not even help... Because that's even patriotic, like patronizing or whatever. They just want to like see what you're about. Mm. That's where you start it from, right? But the thing is that like there is a, a leverage point. There is a reason that people believe a certain narrative or belong to a certain culture. There is there is usually a fulcrum, just this one piece that if that goes, a lot of the other a lot of the other like infrastructure goes down, right? There's like one pinpoint yeah. reason that like they've latched on into their head for whatever reason and that's why they see the world that way. Has there, for you personally, has there been any uh, narratives that uh, have been damaging for you that you've managed to get yourself out of? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. And again, it was because of self-help books, but it was back when I was... Um, 19 or whatever 
or 18. And I was just like, at university, I hated my degree. I hated not doing anything creative anymore. And as a result of just being in that degree and just hanging around a bunch of people that wanted to be bureaucrats when they uh, graduated and they were just very grey people. And I wasn't used to that coming from a performing arts school. I was used to a lot of uh, being around a bunch of energetic, creative people, I guess. And so, like, I hated that world and I was kind of just resigned to that is how my life is going to turn out. And so as a result of that, I started to become grey and boring like bureaucrats. Mm-hmm. And as a result, as I've told the story a million times, then I picked up a Tony Robbins book that was just in the library and mm. then it was just like, you can create your own life. Mm. And that completely shifted it. It was mm. just like, I, it never occurred to me until that point. Yeah, because, yeah. And that's what most people are, like you said, when you're a teenager. You're kind of just this leaf in the wind of whatever like circumstances you are a part of. Yeah, but yeah, you're a sponge, man. You're a sponge. Mm. But if somebody just even, like, see, that one fulcrum completely changed my life. It was just like, no, you decide what your life is. From the ground up, you can design your entire life yeah. from the absolute basis of just, like, little teeny beliefs to where you're going. All of that is up to you. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Do you think that you have one? Sorry, I know that it's getting late and we should probably go. Yeah, I would have had I would, I, plenty. Um One that we spoke about in the previous podcast, which was definitely the um, the narrative that uh, well, it's val it's a value structure really. So I would have valued uh, being a, a mainstream comedian slash actor above what I was doing. And yeah, you change. Yes, the the I don't know if there was a specific point that I could call the fulcrum which changed that. Um, but it was a it was a sort of cumulative effect of actually experiencing the um the mainstream industry for what it was and yeah. saying that it's not all it's yeah cut out to be yeah. it's um it's and very I'm, much a, a, an example of the grass seems greener yeah. and nothing seems greener than you know being a famous comedian per se yeah um, and then there've been other ones like i would say i did have a pretty incel mentality when i was younger mm. i didn't have a lot of success with uh girls in high school and I'd always put that down to uh, I'd never take personal responsibility for that mm. I was about it's because I'm Indian <laughs> yeah 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 it's because I mean it's because I'm short it's because yeah. I mean it's because I'm short. always those two things it's because I'm Indian it's because I'm short it's because I'm Indian it's because I'm short mm. and the crazy thing about uh, an ideology like that is you can find statistics that confirm that belief because there is a I have a stand-up joke about that. When it comes to dating preferences uh, online, Indians are like the the least favoured. <laughs> oh, so sad. And I kind of, you know, God, sending, hey, baby, please send bobs and vajen. That's not going to help. <laughs> yeah, no. But then I just, I just use that statistic. You can always find statistics that suit, that, that fit your narrative. In fact, that's what all the not only just the sjw culture but a lot of the uh the subcultures we see today that um find value in their uh their undue suffering they're just picking nitpicking certain statistics mm. so i would say i'd be like well look, yeah see like it's not my fault and yeah, then, yeah. and the high thing i mean that goes without saying yeah women love don't like short men mm. but then i i I came to realize, um, and it was a long process, but you come to realize that is, th- those things do have an effect, but it is so minor compared to the 
what is in your circle of influence. Exactly. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And you can change that by, as you said, creating your own narrative. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes if you, if you've, if you've uh, had a negative narrative for an extended period of time, I would say you can even counterbalance that by, by giving yourself a, an opposing narrative to that. So this sounds super lame, but yeah, you just give yourself affirmations like, you know, I'm a, I'm a charismatic, high value male, all this sort of things like that, which sounds stupid and it sounds ridiculous, but that is the sort of thing that you need to implant into your subconscious, which will get you out of that victim narrative. Yep. You need to tell yourself that you're not a victim. Mm. Yeah. And it's, it's, and and you know what else as well? It is very obvious in your psychology that that's the place that you're at now. That's why I say I'm a nine out of ten. Yeah. That's why I'm a nine out of ten. Nine out of ten happiness. uh, That was in the previous podcast, but. No, and I think that that's true actually. And I see that with you as well. Like, I remember that about myself when I was very into these ideas, and now it's kind of just a faded memory. Well, it's still there, but it's just just because I'm not focusing on it as much anymore. But no, now that you see it, you actually do see that you're living the principles, and that's why you're internally just very content with life, I think. Is because yeah. again that that has become your culture. Yeah, yeah. Make your own narrative. So yeah, it's cool, man. Like it's actually a really interesting thing to think about. But honestly, see, look, just before I go, that mm. is what I'm saying. Is like the, the, what I find so important about that mainstream media narrative is the fact that exactly what you just said it yourself, right? you were enamored by mainstream culture because that is such a powerful influence in society. It really is, you know, the Wizard of Oz behind the curtains. It determines what is a thing and what isn't a thing, or at least that's what we used to think, and now, like, we've realized that that's YouTube. And But we, again, we grew up in that mainstream society, right? Mm-hmm. Which is exactly what I see with boomers all the time. They just have all these mainstream talking points, but the fact that I delve deeper and I look into policy and I have statistics to back up what I'm saying, I give my audience statistics to disarm those mainstream media talking points and you will see it over and over again in comments them just repeating the statistics that i said and they just best those talking points that they have because obviously because they're just crocs of shit they're just very (laughs) surface level crap talking points right sure so it's like this constant thing of like um I really like thinking of it that way of just like uh, disassembling what that mainstream media narrative is and how can you help create a new culture? Definitely. I think that's a really important thing. Yeah. And I just want to add as a further concluding remark, I think if there was any piece of advice that we could give the listeners and viewers, it's uh, be as introspective as you can and try to work out what are your, the group identities you belong to and then as much as you objectively can, try to figure out how are they serving you? Are yes. they serving you better than um, than certain other ones? Or are they serving you in an adverse way? Especially look at the ones that if, if there's a narrative that's painting you as a victim, really try to rid yourself of that as much as possible. Yeah. And again, that's, well, I guess that is a boomer talking point. Like, don't, just don't be a victim, eh? No, but it's true. <laughs> but it is, like, it's very true. Is, like, a lot of these cliches, there's a lot of wisdom to them. Yeah, it's very, very true. You're not, you're not a victim. 
You are beautiful and powerful. You're amazing. <laughs> You're strong. You can be whatever you want to be. <laughs> yeah, all, all good gems of wisdom. Yeah. Although they, it does make me feel slightly uncomfortable, like, hearing that and uh, agreeing <laughs> to it. But it's true. <laughs> 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 all right, all right. Well, yeah, I guess we, let's let's go. We'll wrap it up there. That was a good one. That <laughs> yeah. was a very good one. Sick. All right. See you guys next time. Bye. Subscribe. Later.